0: So let's get down to business with another episode of Startup Hustle brought to you by Fullscale.io. And we're back, back for another episode of Startup Hustle. Matt DeCourcy here to have another conversation I'm hoping helps your business grow. So, so many people use the term serial entrepreneur and such a very, very, very small portion of them probably deserve the moniker. Uh, A serial entrepreneur, by my definition, is someone that literally can't help themselves when it comes to starting businesses, owning businesses, or really just not working for anybody else. I consider myself to be a serial entrepreneur. In fact, I often say that I'm unemployable. For that very reason. I'm not sure today's guest will describe himself as the as being the same, but we're gonna ask. And then before I introduce who will be joining me on today's show, today's episode of Startup Hustle is brought to you by fullscale.io, helping you build a software team quickly and affordably. With me today, I've got Mike Evans, and Mike's the founder of Fixer. He's also soon to be an author, much like myself, and it, and would love it if you would go to MikeEvans.com and learn more about the book that he has coming out. You can also go to Fixer.com. That's exactly like it sounds. Now, folks, I'm going to make it real easy on you. There are links for both of those in the show notes. So let's go ahead and get this thing started straight out of Chicago, Illinois. Mike, welcome to Startup Hustle.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me on. It's great.
0: Yeah, I'm looking forward to uh, uh, getting into some of the serial entrepreneur stuff. And much like the, the title says, you went from Grubhub to Fixer. And I would love it if you would give myself and the audience a little bit of your backstory.
1: Yeah, uh, it's funny you mentioned the serial entrepreneur, because I don't know that I would describe myself as that. I, uh, I had one company, did pretty well uh and now i'm doing a second one i it it seems like serial entrepreneur most people who use that to describe themselves um have had a series of failures and now they're still trying uh which is kind of harsh uh i don't know two is enough for me i if if this one works great i think i'll call it at that but uh yeah so i started grubhub back in 2002 uh in my apartment i wanted a pizza and getting a pizza was hard um a lot of people were like, "I don't see what's hard about picking up the phone and calling somebody to find a pizza and 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 finding them in the in the yellow pages to do that." And I'm like, "Everything about this is terrible. Nobody wants to make that phone call." So I started that company back in 2002, um, launched it in 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 sort of in its current form with online ordering closer to 2004, um, and then ran it for 10 years through the IPO uh, and had a, I had a partner Matt as well who joined me in that ride, and so um, so I did that. Uh, then I, I rode off into the sunset. I literally rode my bike across the United States from, from Virginia to Oregon. Um, and then after a few years, decided to jump back into having a startup. Um, and I can talk a lot about the origin story of the second startup too. Um, first let me pause there and see, see if I, if I covered the bases you were hoping for, I think the real important question to
0: ask is how long did it take you to ride a bike that far?
1: Yeah, it took uh, three months. Took so just just under three months. Um, it was good to decompress. You know, it was, it was about 20 days after the IPO. Um, and so, you know, sort of just just taking it slow, seeing everything, um, talking to people, sort of getting grounded again. Um, there's a big difference between being outside a church in the middle of Kansas and, uh, you know, a kid from a Bible study offering you a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and uh, an investment banker who's ordered a full spread. Uh, just prior to the IPO you know and and put it on the private jet that you're gonna fly to the IPO and is a there's a gap between those two things for sure um, and it was a really good one to experience I think it was good to get back to my roots a little bit get back to the, to just sort of um, well it wasn't normal but it was it was abnormal maybe in a different way than running a startup for a little while um yeah. We're going to go under the assumption that the
0: kid in rural Kansas had ordered that peanut butter and jelly sandwich on Grubhub.
1: So absolutely, that's, they, that's c- where it came full that's circle. Where they there. Get the peanut butter and jelly sandwiches for the Bible study.
0: Yeah, sure. So, so <laughs> you know, we we were talking about the term serial entrepreneur, and I'm going to disagree with your assessment of yourself because I think that it's probably fair to assume that a founder, of, and we don't have to get into the details, but if you're the founder of something that goes IPO afterward you can kind of live the life you want. You don't have to necessarily jump back in and do a lot of stuff. And like I said, we don't talk about those kind of details here on the show because that's nobody's business, but yours. But in order for you to jump back in, you had to have the itch somewhere and you wanted to, there was clearly a problem somewhere somehow that you wanted to solve. So what there is a serial nature to Uh, signing back up for the misery that comes with being a founder of a startup in general. So, what made you want to start Fixer?
1: Yeah, I think. Um, let's get real philosophical. You ready? Let's so, do it. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. So, I think that we all tend to ask ourselves the question, "Why me?" And we ask that question when things go bad, right? If if you get sick, or if a family something happens to a family member, or have an accident, you say, you know, "Why me?" And the assumption is it shouldn't happen to me, right? We don't really ask that question very much when things go well, right? Most people assume when things go well, it's because um, of some intrinsic quality that they had that they sort of enforced upon the universe to make things go well. I actually don't think those. the question why me is, is particularly valuable. Um, I think the question what now is a lot more valuable um, because, um, and, and that's where I found myself, you know, I, I had the IPO, the, the company, you know, the company went public and a value, uh, I think it was over two and a half billion. Um, and so I certainly didn't have to like work real hard for a living after that. Um, I didn't have a, a huge percentage of that company, but it doesn't take a huge percent to be really life-changing, um, you know, by the time we went through the IPO and so, um, and so what now? And, and one of the things that I found, um, was that, um, a lot of, a lot of things that I had, a lot of the assets that I had were atrophying. So. Um, I had relationships with investors, right? I had skills that I'd built as an entrepreneur. I had relationships with other coworkers. Um, I had all these things and they were every year or every month sort of becoming less and less valuable. And so the what now sort of had some urgency to it too. If I was gonna do something else, I couldn't wait forever before I was really gonna be starting from scratch again. And if you've been involved in startups, starting from scratch sucks, right? It's, it's hard to start from nothing. Um, and so I, I had been doing, um, I had gotten into investing a little bit. I'd done, a, done a, I don't know, maybe 15 different um, angel investments. And I had developed a thesis around impact investing, around the idea that I wanted to invest in businesses that use their business as a lever for change in, in society. And, um, and in fact, the, my definition for an impact company is, is. Um, and so I didn't invent this, but it's the one I've adopted that is you know those businesses where the social enterprise, the community benefit that they create and the business model can't be divorced. They can't be pulled apart. And so as I was thinking about like what now, I sort of was like, well I have some cash, I have relationships with investors, I have all these coworkers, I had all I have all these things. And I have this idea that like I might be able to make the world a better place um, by by creating a business that, that at its root, that the business model and the community benefit are the same thing. And so that, that's what sort of launched the search for what the, what next, like what we were going to do. Um, and so that was like, that was the why I got, I jumped back in. And then the, what we, I decided to do why we picked fixer. So I should describe what fixer is we're a few minutes in here. I haven't even actually mentioned it yet. So fixer is, um, it's a, it's a near demand handy person service. Uh, where we come and fix things in your house, hang things on walls, you know, change out a ceiling fan, fix a broken pipe, anything you'd expect a handy person to be able to do. The big difference between this business and a lot of, um, a lot of others is that we actually employ the workers as W2 employees with benefits uh, full-time and we train them from scratch. So um, the, the number of people able to do this work isn't sufficient for the number of people who want the work done, which is why the Angie's List and Thumbtacks and, and, and those kind of companies are doomed to fail because there just aren't enough workers to do the connection, and so we said, "Well, why don't we just create more supply?" Um, and and that all started from I had a rain barrel I wanted installed, and uh, I couldn't get it done. I tried those services, I couldn't get somebody to show up. So that all came together, and we decided to I decided to go go for a second round, try this again.
0: By the way, the struggle's real on the handyman stuff. Uh, you know, I, I I could whip out my phone right now and literally open up my to-do list and it is ripe with things that I'm going to try fixer for. And if you have the same problem, I, I do, you get $40 off when you go to fixer.com forward slash hustle. So um, that's a, that's a gift from Mike to those that need some handy help. And, you know, I, I like the approach you talk about creating more supply and sometimes that's what needs to occur and it, now, so is, is doing that and providing jobs and all that, I mean, is that, is that a redeeming thing when you talk about wanting to make a change or wanting to make a difference? I mean, yeah. I think anytime you provide someone with training, it's back to that, you know, teach a man to fish yeah. kind of thing. I mean, is that part of it or is is, yeah. is, is there a different driver?
1: I mean, that's it. It's, it's the benefit is that we're creating gender inclusive path into the trades you know i the word fixer is non-gendered and i always say the word handy people instead of handyman and that's all very intentional right if you want to you know it's you probably had someone in your last 600 guests say um that you should have a big hairy audacious goal right and so ours is to reboot trade education in the united states um which is a ridiculous goal right but uh but we think we actually are on a path to do it and so creating that um you know alternative to college Highly paying, highly skilled, like career path that is open to people of all color and all, you know, all races and, and, and all genders. Um, it's, it's a really powerful social benefit, right? It's also really good business because um, if you remember the first day of Economics 101, like if any of you took it, you know, if, if supply is constrained and demand is high, price goes up. And so being the company that has its own supply, uh, and offering a premium high-end service. Now we can charge a premium rate, um, for, for that service. And so, um, it, and that's what the business is. It's a, it's a premium, it's a premium experience. Right. Um, and it actually even evolves from, I've got the, like you said, you had a list, right. That, that you want to go through. Um, and I imagine on that list, there's, there's some safety items and there are some beautification items and there's some just like convenience issues. Right. Um, what would be even better is if you didn't even have to think about the list. Like if we owned the list for you, right? And and we came into your place and we looked around and said, you know what we could do for you? Blah, 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 blah. And then you could just add things to the list and then we take them off the list, right? And so we ended up morphing into a subscription-based. We have the a la carte service. We also have a subscription-based service where what we really are shooting to do is just take the mental load out of owning a home, um, which is like the real the real emotional benefit. Like I don't even have to think about it. I just like, it on i literally just text it to fixer and then at some point in the normal scheduled business it just gets taken care of magically um and so that's like that's the real like engine of the business well i can certainly
0: say you threw it close enough to the rim here that i'm not gonna avoid the dunk here but i know exactly what you're talking about when it comes to helping with the supply and demand i mean i'm the ceo and founder of full scale and i've got a couple hundred uh uh top tier uh, programmers and developers that work for me. Why? Because we got tired of, we, meaning me and my business partner, got tired of there being a huge shortage of developers here. And we felt that the problem, there was a problem to be solved when it came to helping Software companies have a reliable source to find vetted software engineers, and we created everything that we do and and have built to this point around solving that problem for software companies. Mm -hmm. you talk about the premium side of things i mean we have our own employees they're not just contractors and that lets us offer a different level of service that makes a lot of sense so yeah. you know it's it's uh on some levels it's a little bit amazing to me that that a service similar to fixer um hat didn't come out around the same time that grubhub came around you know and like I mean, so it's just, it's still astonishing the kind of solutions and problems and things that can be solved that still aren't. And, you know, there's seen such a significant change with that. And, you know, I think when it comes to social impact, I mean, I think anytime you're giving, you're you're making an impact in and around wherever you're doing business, you're doing exactly that. You're creating change, you're making things better. And that's comes from better opportunity, better education. And then you're helping solve problems on the other side of that. In regards to my list, uh, I literally a month ago took a week off. So I could just, do a bunch of fixer type stuff. Cause it was, yeah. I was at the point where it was just bothering me that some of that stuff had been on my list for so long.
1: Okay. So, you no, know, it's um, funny you say that because I, I could like, I could take a week off to go do some coding. Uh, <laughs> and actually it would be really great to just use your service instead. Cause I, you know, my background's as a software developer. Um, and so uh, I mean, I feel it and it's amazing the parallels, right? Like, it's if you look at what, what makes a good gig economy company, it's the skills are readily available and you don't have to train them. You just have to acquire the acquire the talent through some combination of pay and what, whatever Uber and Grubhub and all those companies do. Um, but if it's a if it's a highly skilled position and the supply is constrained, um, scaling isn't about how fast you can acquire talent. It's about how well you can retain talent instead. Yep. And so the W2 model was absolutely the way we were going to go. And it terrifies like 90% of investors, right? Like they look at it and they're like, wait, you're gonna have a W2 model and train people? Oh no, the gig economy is the only way to go. And I'm like, well, I'm glad you think that because it just decreases the amount of competition that I have to deal with. So that's fine. Um, It's annoying when you have to go raise financing to have to fight that battle, but some people just get it.
0: Yeah, we went through the exact same thing at full scale. You know, we had a hundred employees after our first year and uh i mean the number of of problems and issues and it was just a very non standard thing and uh, you know, it's like, well, why not just hire people as contractors? Well, the problem is, is if they're not our employees, I don't have the ability. It is all about retention. And in order to do that, you got to have a great culture. You got to have, have great opportunities. Mm-hmm. We have to vet our clients as much as, as our employees. And, you know, I mean, and, and it does make it ultimately not scalable because it's driven by people. That's the big allure with software and why so much of it trades for the multiple it does is because software shows up to work every day. So doesn't usually won't call in sick yeah it does require some maintenance but you know it can scale up to a lot a, 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 you know any teeth of, of exponent or multiple and you know it's it's interesting because um there's so, so many overlooked businesses that are brilliant that yeah. like well you look at like fixer or something like that and Uh, you know, I, I guarantee that had the exact same issues we had with full scale, which I have collected no funding on. We just wrote our own checks and we've been successful prior to that. And that made it a lot easier for us to understand our own needs. So so with that, and, you know, you're, you, you, let's talk about your book for a second, because this is something I don't want to get too deep into the episode and, and not chat about. Um, so w- when, when does the book come out? And once again, if you want to go sign up for some info around that, go to MikeEvans.com. I think you have a sign up link on there that
1: will let people know when it comes out. But uh, w- what did you write about? Yeah. So the book is about, um, the experience of, you know, starting a, starting a startup from scratch. Right. And, um, and re- really the main message of the book is, is just be thoughtful about what you're trying to accomplish. When I started Grubhub, um, I, I had a very specific goal in mind. I had $260,000 in school debt. Um, and I wanted to clear out my school debt and there's an element of like, be careful what you ask for. Like, it turns out that that was, was too small of a goal. And so, what ended up happening is the company grew, the goalposts moved. But as the goalposts are moving, you know, as the goal changes over time, um, you know, it's it's not always that easy to move the rest of the organization along with you, right? And so um, there's an element, there's a there's a big piece in the book. The the, the real theme of it is um, it's just really important to know like what your goals are personally as you as you create a startup. If you don't set that for yourself, it will be set by other entities, right? And and some people, they, they absolutely want to, to to create the multi-billion dollar unicorn and be filthy rich, right? But, and that's what your investors want you to do. But, but most people who are creating startups, they have a different portfolio, right? And, and a half million dollar check would change their lives really significantly. You don't need a billion dollar check. And so thinking about like what your financial goals are, what your social goals are, you know, whatever it is, if you just wanna have fun while you're doing it, I think it's just really important to be intentional about setting that for yourself. Um, and making sure the goals of the company align with whatever that is personally. Um, and then the other real theme behind it is that it's emotional, right? Like it's not, we're not robots as we do this, right? As, as goals change, as challenges come up, as investors are either helpful or challenging, you know, that's either, that either makes you thrilled or gets you really angry as the, as, as threats to the business or benefits to the business show up, they really translate internally. And so, um it, it's it's really just the emotional experience of starting a startup and and the importance of being goal oriented um and then interleaved with that is just the bike trip that i took uh where i where i actually got a chance to reflect back on this after the ipo um and so it's a bit of an a it's sort of a journey right and so um that's what the book's about um and yeah like you said you can go to mikeevans.com and 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 sign up for a, for a, a pre-order link um which i'll send out as soon as i have them the book should come out in early 2022
0: I'd like to talk a little bit about the emotional side of entrepreneurship. Now, before we do that, a quick reminder that today's episode of Start a Puzzle is brought to you by Fullscale.io, helping you build a software team quickly and affordably. We'll take some of the emotion out of you crying when you realize uh, that the supply and demand economic is way out of whack because there are approximately 350,000 open IT jobs right now. So supply and demand is not in favor of the buyer in that regard. It is a seller's market and likely to stay that way. Now, um, you know, the emotional nature of, of entrepreneurship. Um, I I think most people have cried over their business at some point, and there's different reasons for that. Maybe tears of joy, tears of frustration, tears of, oh shit, this is going to drag me down to the bottom. But overall it's, I think that lack of emotion is a lack of passion. How important do you think it is to be um, it is or how important is it or how important is it to not be emotionally involved in what you're doing? And is that even possible? It's
1: uh, it's important to be authentic. Right. The people who who are just even keeled and can start a business and think through it and, and very logically, they may be great leaders. Just being themselves i i'm not that person i freak out when things go wrong and uh and i get really excited when things go right and so like bringing that to the to, authentically i think is actually really important just from a leadership perspective it's very hard to lead if you're not being yourself and so because i'm because i'm a, a pretty like hot-headed individual at times like that's how i run the business like we're going to set a passionate like Let's go reboot trade education in the United States. Let's create a gender inclusive path into the trades. Um, and let's do it in a way that like makes people's homes better to live in. Like that sounds really exciting and interesting to me. And you know what, when like COVID comes along and like you have a service where you're going into people's homes and you know, your your business drops by 80% in a week, um, you're gonna be unhappy about that. You're gonna lose some sleep, right? Like I like I lost a lot of sleep over that. and. And, you know, we, we were hustling, like we were, we were making decisions two, three times a day, to figure out how to keep our fixers employed, even though we couldn't go into homes, you know, we, we got involved with some house flips, so we could send people solo into empty homes, so they could still work, it was at a loss, but it wasn't as much of a loss as if they were just sitting idle, right, like, um, and so like, the emotion also helped us get through that. But like, whew, it takes a toll, it takes a toll personally, like, um, you know, you, you need coping mechanisms for just dealing with the frustration and disappointment and, and of that, especially when you're like, why did I come out of retirement? Like what, like, what am I doing? This is a lot of work. I could just be skiing instead. This is terrible. Serial. Um, yeah. Serial. I don't know being, I think it's important to be of use. I think that it being without that direction um, for somebody who has an entrepreneurial drive is um, I think it can be fatal, actually, I think it, it can be really bad. Um, and so uh, it is important if you've got that drive to like, to scratch the itch.
0: So that's something you know. You mentioned the kind of the hot headed nature. Uh, I, I'm the same way. I just uh, recorded a video the other day. All right, about, yeah, I was gonna ask uh,
1: for an example. I'm but, supposed to ask you a question. Well, my, my st- you know,
0: so we have Startup okay. Hustle TV and this podcast. And you know, the, the podcast is kind of an outlet. This is this is a break for me and not the other way around but you know i take so much that i do seriously and it kills me when it gets off track especially for reasons that could have been avoidable and you know i think you know i, I turned 46 this year and and i'm trying to work on a new level of like zen patience but it, it but but the passion the energy the emotion pierce through that a lot so i just had I recorded a video ride a
1: bike to- across the country
0: like, dude, maybe it's not my time yet. But I have many, many, I have many, many post-work plans that are uh, maybe not bicycling, but other things that are, that are out there that I'll definitely do now. It's funny because people that know me, they're like, dude, you'll never retire. You'll never do, this is what you do. I'm like, yeah, don't get so, don't be so sure about that. But yeah. uh, you talk about like, you know, piercing through, I mean, some, the, the part that It's tough for me, is that I've I've learned that sometimes that angry emotional uh, person is also a person that gets what they want out of a situation. Like sometimes that that I think that when it comes to dealing with people, you push or you pull, and sometimes that push uh, gets what you want. So I had recorded a video the other day where I was basically. Oh, man, I try not to get angry. So I kind of like the Incredible Hulk has days without incident. Um, I reset that clock back to zero the other day and then got to have a different debate with my creative team about why we should be publishing the videos and the content that I recorded related to that. Well, this doesn't reflect your brand. Well, no, but we're telling the real story of entrepreneurship. And for the people that I know that are really passionate about it, they wear their heart on their sleeve. And I have a whole bunch of people that I have uh, built social capital with in our company because they know that I go to bat for them, that I'm there, I'm taking punches, I'm throwing them and I'm doing all that. And, you know, sometimes, sometimes that is hard to reel in. Um, I'm getting better by the time I finally figure it out, I'll probably retire, but yeah. well, it'll eat you up though. I mean, I think that's what you're getting yeah. to and there's a price to that. Cause you know, no one's wife wants to like if I, my wife doesn't, she hears it all the time anyway, but she didn't want to hear me come home from work and go on a tangent for an hour about how something pissed me off. And you know, like now I just married an incredibly patient woman um, outside of that. She probably would have left like 10 years ago. So, you know, but, but with that, I mean, what's it, what's it, yeah. That that level of passion, drive, and obsession is something that I see in pretty much everybody I know. That's uber. Maybe that's not the right word in this podcast, but that is ultra. <laughs> I, don't success. A, I don't have a in fine. Fine. Uh, I try to catch <laughs> myself there, but you know that that stuff can take a toll. And uh, we've even done episodes about founders' depression. Um, and, you know, the ups and downs, I mean, it's kind of similar to the comparisons that I hear uh, gamblers and poker players talk about, about the ups and downs of winning and losing and those yeah. swings. And it's stressful and it isn't like you talk about an IPO. But there's a big that difference. Was, though. That, was, that wasn't done until the paper was signed. But there's like, a there big a difference
1: between the poker player, whose ups and downs only affect themselves, and the entrepreneur who has True. employees and the ups and downs affects them. And uh, there's a responsibility that comes with even being authentic, even being emotional, you know, the people, my coworkers, a lot of them have told me, and I, and I believe this, that they appreciate working with somebody who's leading them, who cares, who really gives a shit. Right. But the flip side of that is I and other entrepreneurs have to be really careful um, with people's feelings. Like I've developed rules, like um, criticize and correct in private apologize and praise in public right like um and and you just you just can't come you know when, when if you're this if you're a founder and you're upset about something you're not using a like a ball peen hammer to like solve that issue You're using a sledgehammer so you just got to be really careful like if you're going to swing it like know that you want to swing it and know that there's emotional shrapnel that comes with with when you're interacting with people and you're el- in an elevated emotional state like um, it can cause a lot of damage and, and there's a responsibility to be, to, to work on that and to be aware of it. And, and without losing your passion, still treat, like treat people, um, with kindness. Right. Like, and it's hard, it can be hard. It can be hard to care about something and be like, you fucked it up, but like, you don't say it that way. Right. <laughs> it be like, okay, let's think about what our goals are. Let's think about how we fell short from them and, and do it privately instead of like call somebody out in front of a hundred employees. Right. So I, I mean, I think there's a responsibility that comes along with that emotional leadership. Um, it's just I just it's you have to be safe. You have to be a safe person to pe- for people to be around.
0: I, I think that that understanding begins with understanding yourself that no one's going to care about your business as much as you do. You know, I, I I literally think about the so one of my books, Million Dollar Bedroom. I talk about like driving down the road and I'm like talking to myself, like I'm having a conversation with myself about God knows what. And finally the light bulb popped. And I'm like, you know what? They're the people that work at my business. are never going to care about it as much as I do because they don't have a reason to. Mm-hmm. Now that doesn't mean you don't have, you don't, you don't find people that care because they're out there. It's a, I find that that's a trait that you can't train. You can't make someone care they do or they don't. But mm-hmm. You know, I think for me, part of the the realization that that like that stark reality uh, chilled me out a little bit, you know, because I was like, why can't everyone else work 5000 hours a week? You know, and and, I mean, because that's not the way it works. When you own the business, you once again, you have that emotional tie to it. It's like a child, you know, and and. And I think until and, and that's I'm interested to hear. So maybe you can you can give me a vote one way or the other. So one of the things that drives me fucking nuts is you know there's all this stuff that's out there for entrepreneurs, and you get all these panels and all this different shit. And occasionally you run into one, and it's got a bunch of people that have never been entrepreneurs wanting to give me advice about how to be one. And I and I just don't find that advice to usually be credible because i don't think until you've done it
1: you have any perspective on it yeah I've, i've experienced that i've experienced um like hearing a lawyer on a panel talk about like what's important about filings before and i'm like go make some money figure out the paperwork later like we didn't we didn't file the business license for grubhub So a few years after we started doing business, which I don't officially recommend to be clear and we corrected and we paid the fines, but like, um, yeah, that's my, that's my approach as well. I get it. Yeah. Make revenue. Like that's the first part, right? Like When I started the second business, when I started fixer, um, the, the first hour I had my friend Katie who could fix anything. And I had five friends who I told about the idea a couple of weeks previous. And I said, at some point I'm going to text you and say, we're open for business. And so it was like a it's like a wednesday afternoon and i texted my five friends and i said hey we're open for business and then like 48 minutes later chris one of my buddies texted me back and said hey i need some shelves installed and so then katie went and did the first job so we made and we booked the. i got his credit card we charged it on um uh, quickbooks or whatever system we were using but like and then she went and did the work so like all the fundamentals of the business that still exist today were in that i just described them all right we had like I had customer acquisition. There was a fulfillment channel. They texted me, right? Like I had, I sent the person on dispatch. They went and did the work. We did the billing. And then I, and then she sent me pictures of the before and after, so we could check the quality, right? Like I just described in broad terms, all of, like, but it, there was, it wasn't rocket science. It was make a dollar. Right. And then the second piece is, was the quality of that good enough to get Chris to order again the next week? Can I get them to reorder? Because, if, if the service was good enough that they spent money on it and they want to spend money on it again I've got a real business and so within the first week I had four or five repeat customers um, it, it like there's a lot of hustle there's a lot to learn there's a lot of best practices to learn and things like that but I'm surprised how how infrequently just the go make some like build a product and go make some money like that like do that rinse and repeat which you know that's been documented pretty extensively in Eric Reese's book lean startup and um, it, it, it's, it's like, I think that's the way to run a business. I mean, you can't do it with hardware. There's certain, you can do it with like an oil drilling company. Right. But like, there's certain businesses, a lot of businesses, a lot, most startups can be started that way.
0: Yeah. I actually have a section in Million Dollar Bedroom about that as well, about the, the ball of rubber bands. Cause if you get onto something good, you're gonna, you're gonna make a mess. Uh, You know, like most, most successful entrepreneurs say something along the lines of move fast and break things. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because if you're not doing that, I mean, that's that there's a whole, I mean, that's like five other shows worth of content there. But there's, you know, I I always tell people, I'm like, Hey, if I get the chance, I'm selling everything in this son of a bitch. And then we'll clean up afterward. The, the, the flip side of what you want to avoid is being the shopkeeper that's so obsessed with keeping the store clean that you never get around to opening the front door. Yeah, that's the opposite reality of that. And, you know, that so, you know, where in your experience, both with Grubhub and building Fixer, have you found have you found yourself on either side of that or were you or were you the, hey, let's sell everything and we'll clean up later? Because it's because the the reason the guy doesn't want to open the store is he's insecure. It's too dirty. Yeah. It's not orderly. I'm not ready. There's no money in the cash register. It's just there's it's it's usually a
1: a symphony of of doubt. Yeah, um, I, I've experienced that with Fixer for sure. I mean the the first employee that we had, Katie, she could fix anything, um, and I assumed the second person that we hired could fix anything, and I was right about the third person. But it it wasn't until a few weeks in that we realized like the second person that we hired they they had really low quality work and so then you know we knew that the, the thesis of the business that we trained people from scratch but to to do that you have to actually hire experienced people first to be the mentors and so how do you bootstrap the quali- like the quality control around um, <coughs> which which of the fixers could like which of the experienced fixers were really good at good and you can do it you can look at 100 reviews from customers and you can do it a, you can look at like what the average rating is and then you can let the customers tell you but that means you're exposing your early customers to a, a, a pretty um, a wide variety of quality on the product. But we had to; we like there was no other way to bootstrap our quality scores other than that. Now later in the business, we you know we have a training center and we have tests and we have uh, practical tests and there's, there's lots of ways to tell to be able to predict whether somebody's going to do a good job in their first few jobs. And we also do shadowing and all this other stuff. But early on, we just needed people to go fix things, and then. Um, and then after the fact understand if they were doing a good job or not which is um which is but and then the same and then what happened later is um we realized you can't do that with safety right you can't you can't expose workers to unsafe conditions um and just like fix it later like you you have to be the shopkeeper who waits to open the door when you're when you're putting people physically in other spaces and they're climbing on ladders and painting things and using knives and all the stuff a handy person does like you need a safety program, um, from, from day one. Um, and it was more like day like 21 that we had it. Fortunately, nobody got hurt in that interim because I trusted the people that were doing the work and they work safely, but we had to very quickly systematize our safety programs and, um, and just make sure nobody got hurt on the job. And so like, it's a give and a take, right? Like the, the move fast and break things, is fine if it's a piece of software or if it costs someone a few dollars. It's not okay if it's someone's arm, right? Like that's that's true. not okay. And so we had to be really thoughtful about um, about that. And it was true with Grow Hub as well. Like when you have people, you can't, you know, Domino's tried this back in the eighties and nineties. They had like um, guarantees on how long it took for food to get there. And it caused some pretty horrific traffic accidents. And so um, the move fast and break things doesn't work when you're bringing a pizza. Like, cause the thing that breaks is a person. So like, there's it's a moral obligation to not do that, right? And I'm not sure that actually everybody believes that. I think there are some startups that are perfectly fine with the move fast and break things, having no like sort of moral considerations. But, um, but yeah, I mean, it's that balance that's part of that's part of being an entrepreneur is striking that balance.
0: We went through the same thing at full scale when you talk about like, is this person able to to be a fixer? Um, you know, we had to, we ended up kind of like what you mentioned, we ended up creating our own, our, like our own certification process. Like we just created it all from scratch. Um, so much of it, like we looked at things like there's a lot of like code tests and stuff out there. A lot of them just have the answers posted everywhere. So that's no good. And then a lot of them, uh, we just asking trivia questions and like really in the end, what were we hiring people to do? We were hiring to solve problems. So we had to create something that helped us do that now much like you mentioned and so you know the move fast and break things it does apply in some cases it definitely is no good for people and that we were very thoughtful about that as well so we had to you know we went and hired people and as we've scaled and you know here we are barely over three years old a couple hundred employees and we've figured out who who works well so we've yeah. been able to benchmark their certain traits and results compared to other people. And it's getting it's become kind of uncanny. I mean, that's the thing is. And so with that, I think that any new business at any point is a a little bit of a science experiment. And you know, as we begin to, to wrap up a little bit, let's talk about some of the tips uh, for starting a new business. I mean, I think, uh, I mean, the, the first advice that I give, and by the way, we'll just, we'll roll this into an extended version of the founders freestyle, uh, which is how I like to end my episodes. I say my episodes, I'm not the only host of the show. I'm, if you listen regularly, you know, that make sure you tune in for the weekly edition with Andrew Morgans, who's going to talk all about Amazon and e-commerce and stay tuned for Lauren Conaway, the founder of innovate her as she tackles so many issues that I am not brave enough to address, so and as we begin to to round this out and give some tips for starting a business and you know here 's the thing is is for those of you that that are listening uh, you know we 've had a lot of people on the show, most of which haven 't driven a company to an iPO and one of the things that that has stood out and yet another episode brought to us by fullscale.io helping you build a software team quickly and affordably is kind of talking about the emotional component. Now with that, uh, you know, we mentioned ha- being hotheaded or angry. I prefer to call that passionate. And I think that that's where I'll kind of we can we can we can ping pong these back and forth. But I think if you're not passionate about the business that you started or the problem you solve or at least the people um, at least be passionate about making money if it comes down to it. But if you lack passion, you're going to
1: lack results. Yeah, I think that's true. I think that um, we, we've been circling around some of these ideas around people as well. Right. So, um, you know, I, you hear a lot of people say like, hi, like uh, hire slow and fire fast. I think that's actually completely against the idea of being a passionate leader. If you're a passionate leader, um, you have to care about the people that you're leading. And if you're good at firing people, you're not a good leader. And so uh, the that that's one piece of advice. I typically would reject the higher, slow, fire fast. You got to hire slow and fire even slower because, uh, cause you're dealing with people and if you're passionate, then you should care about them.
0: Yeah. I, I mean, in my case, when I hire people, I give them a multi-year contract. So I need to be, I need to be pretty exact about it. And that's, that's awesome. part of how we, well, it's part of how we get good people. Cause if mm-hmm. I'm trying to hire you out of a top place. And you're like, yeah, and, you know, you're a probationary employee, blah, 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 blah. I mean, that's not a real good reason to jump ship. So, you know, now I have a feeling that much like myself, you probably had some plan with Grubhub, but probably figured a lot of it out as you went. How do you feel? H- how detailed, especially in the earliest stages, have you been when it came to like business plans and projections and stuff like that?
1: So get this, the first version of Grubhub, um, it was you, know, you could find the restaurants that delivered to you and then you could call them and we we forwarded the call from our phone number to the restaurant with a record and we would record it and then we would just charge the restaurants for the ones that were actually orders based on our algorithm. We didn't actually even start with online ordering. Like, what the hell was I thinking? <laughs> like, of course, online ordering is better, but it didn't even dawn on me until like two years into the business that it, that this way people are searching online. So they should just be able to order online. Um, and so that was like one of the big ones. Another one that we sort of made up with we along. I remember the board meeting where one Steve Miller, one of our investors said, hey, do you think like people might want to order via text on their Palm Pilot? And I was like, no one's ever going to order a pizza on a mobile phone, dude. Like, you're crazy. Like, there's no way like that someone's going to text away and like order a pizza. You're just it's never going to happen. Um and we were like the 80th app on the app store for iPhone when, it, when, it, when, it, when the, apps, the app store launched about a year after the phone did. I don't know if everybody, most people don't remember that part of like ancient internet history. But we, by that time, we had like realized how wrong I was. And we just pivoted. And so that was a big part of the, that drove our growth. Like you couldn't order a pizza anywhere else on the phone except for through GrowPub. Um for like a year. I mean, there were other apps, but they didn't have the, they didn't have the 25,000 restaurants that we had signed up by that point. So, um, so the phone thing helped us sign up restaurants quickly because it was low technology, but it was actually a terrible idea for consumers. And then we went on to online ordering and then we went to phone ordering. And then we tried doing takeout in addition to delivery. And like that didn't work. And then even with Fixer, we've been trying all this kind of stuff, like throw it on the wall and see what works. So like the core service has always been the same, but when the pandemic hit, we tried virtual um, like, like, <clears throat> you know, Zoom or, or FaceTime based, like we'll just help, like we'll be advisors. And like, the press loved it. We, I was, in, I was on TV in fifty different states, probably, or fifty different uh, TV TV interviews in like forty states, and uh, like two hundred people used the service and paid for it. It was like a total flop. And uh, but like, like move on. Like, okay, that didn't work. Like, let's try what else. And then we, then we hit upon this idea of a subscription service where we're actually taking over the mental load for people instead of just doing the task. Um, and that's been wildly successful, right? So, yeah, I mean, like. There's a whole lot of make it up as you go along, right? And, and that requires, um, it requires this completely paradoxical mix of like, I think I know that the world should be a better place in this specific way, how I created this product. And then listening to your customers telling you, like, you need to change the product in this way. So like, you have to have an opinion about what the customers need. And you also have to listen to the customer. And those two things are in conflict a lot. And so as you're thinking through these, throw it against the wall, um, you're dealing with that tension all the time. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I've experienced that like 100 times. And I've gotten it right like 80. But Man, I've had some real failures in there. That costs, you know, some of the decisions I made, like we made a lot of good decisions at Grubhub. But some of them probably limited us by a billion, $2 billion by the time it was all said and done. So, like, they were, That's like, all? They were big deals. I mean, we still... We did okay. I'm not complaining. We did okay. People ask me all, Mike. People ask me all
0: the time. They're like, "What's your approach to startups and entrepreneurship? You've been successful. What's your secret?" I'm like, "I try ten things, hoping that one works." Yeah. You yeah. know, like I mean, I mean, th- dude, that's the approach. Like it's a three, have a three. You a good definition of what th-
1: works means.
0: Well, so th- here's the thing, though. When you find the thing that works, uh, you're looking for that crack. And then your next your next goal is to try to figure out how quickly you can shove an elephant through it. You know, yeah. so you're, mean, yeah. you're just out, you know, and, and I don't want to make it sound that sloppy. But I mean, really, like my my approach to marketing is three words, test, test, test. Because there are things like you mentioned that you thought might go really well, and then they don't. I mean, I think a lot of your success or failure as an entrepreneur is determined about
1: how willing you are to jump off the horse. I've got a great story about testing marketing. So, uh, when I, I, I tried putting ads up on the CTA, which is like the subway system in Chicago, I, I, uh, I put ads up because, um, I noticed that like the ads that were up on the, on the, on the buses and on the trains. Like in December, they'd be advertising like a spring event that was past six months. So I negotiated a whole contract with the with the advertising company for like 100 ads for a year. And I was like, you know what? I actually want 1,000 ads for one month. And they were like, no, you don't. And I'm like, yeah, I do. And they stayed up for 18. Those ads stayed up for yeah. 18 months. And it, I mean, it, abs- it was just, it was a ridiculously, like, I, it was just, I was just hacking the the advertising space. But they wouldn't have known that without testing, right? Like,
0: Right. So. Well, well, I did the same thing. And, you know, this has become a top 20 all time entrepreneur podcast on Apple. Thanks again for everyone that's supported it, both as a listener, an advertiser or a guest. But, you know, so the, it was it was through testing uh, different ways of promoting. And, I, you know, I was in this phase where I was like, let's just be the, the simplest approach. And we made an ad that said a podcast for entrepreneurs. And it was game over. I mean, that was, we haven't even come close to anything that has created the results for any of it. And the reason for that is, I mean, it told people exactly what you want. It's also the understanding that in an ad, you don't win at the click. The ad's job is to get the click. It's what happens after. So we still had to produce a quality product, a quality show, and make it good. But as far as like for people that were interested in that, it told them it it wasn't mystical. It wasn't, there was no, there wasn't anything other than, hey, this is a podcast for entrepreneurs fast, easy. You could always read it. It was in like 100 point font. And, you know, and and that's still the ad that we, we do different iterations of it. But we tested about, oh my God, 50 <laughs> on the yeah. way to literally the simplest, easiest, everything. And yeah. I, you know, I get into that a lot as an entrepreneur because so much, I think that we often complicate things. Uh, I, I, by the way, I'm going to fully support your approach with the thousand ads for one month because I was just thinking about that. We have a new office in downtown Kansas City, Kansas, and I've been driving home every day. And there is a billboard that has an ad for a gun show that was last year. Yeah. And I thought about that. I was like, dude, I should buy some billboards because clear, there's no way this gun show is still paying for this fucking billboard. So. Yep you know, if that was anything else, like that might make sense, but yeah, I commend you on that. I bet that you probably got a ton of mileage out of that. There's probably, there's probably still a bus somewhere with your ad on it. <laughs> there's definitely yeah, the buses with prohub
1: probably- Pro ads on them still, but they're paying. Yeah, I, it, bet. I bet. Well, maybe. Yeah. yeah.
0: <laughs> so, all right. So, so as we wrap up the show, I mean, I, and I, you know, give you a chance to, once again, go to Mike uh, sign up for the book and keep an eye out for that. Go to fixer dot com forward slash hustle and you you can join me in getting forty dollars off of your next job and thank you man like thank you because I needed that like a long time ago I have my list is so long because I don't have a reliable source for someone to get shit fixed and I oh I lie to myself I tell myself I'll do it and I put it on the list and then I don't do it. And then I continue to not do it. And then I feel like I'm married to that to-do list. Like I actually am in a common law marriage yeah. with some of my to-do lists. We have and, been together for that long that yeah, yeah. Yeah. I might have to I
1: might have to inform my wife of that. There might be some legal ramifications you know, there's there. No so stigma associated with that anymore. Like nobody feels like everybody outsources cooking, everybody outsources grocery yeah. shopping, everybody outsources yeah. driving. Like why if you're not a handy person, like yeah. No,
0: that's and that's maybe the most useful thing. You know, there's a startup here in Kansas City that was the founder Ben Jackson started Bungie. It's B-U-N-G-I-I, and it's a it's a it's like Uber for pickup trucks. So they actually work with like IKEA and furniture stores and whatever. And like, I mean, I had a truck for years that I didn't want to get rid of for that like two times a year that I really needed it because yeah. it was that big of a pain in the ass, because I'm not going to be the guy that calls my friend with the truck and be like, Hey, dude, I need your help. Because that's amazing. Yeah, I, I, gotta give, that. I
1: gotta give that a try. Because we actually use Uber and Lyft to go to jobs with our fixers often. But sometimes we yep. need actually tools and stuff like that.
0: Yep. So they they give you someone to to help you carry it. And it's someone with a truck. And I'm like, wow. And their, their slogan is, I think it's your friend with a truck or something like yeah, that. So, by the way, you talk about amazing uh, stories for funding. Those were two college kids and they were at K-State University and they had this idea and they were like, God, we're going to have to find some investors. And they couldn't really think of anything. And they turned around and there was a wall behind them that had a whole whole shitload of donors to the school. So they sat there and they wrote down all the names Mm -hmm. on the wall and just started like they made their mission to call dialing for is, dollars, is, all of And they, <laughs> and they funded their company that way. And, you know, honestly, if I got that call, I would probably write a check too. I'd be like, you know what? Like you're going to get this figured out because that was problem solving. Yeah. Mike on the way out, uh, what, what is, uh, what's some advice you, what's the best advice you could give to anyone that wants to start a business? I know we were know kind of circling around some of that, but what's the best.
1: Know where you're going. Have a, have a goal in mind. Uh, And don't let anybody else set it for you. Set it for yourself intentionally, explicitly, write it down. Um, You just got to, you got to know what it is you're trying to accomplish before you start pulling in that direction. Like that's, that's it. You just have to have a vision for yourself that you've defined for yourself that nobody else is telling you what you're trying to accomplish.
0: Okay. Sub question that goes with that: How do you how do you do that amidst millions of dollars and tons of investors coming in that uh, built, that all have that are all certain that they have the right path for where
1: you need to go? I mean, well, you do it before you have those investors, but also um, that's actually why it's so important because. Um, n- there, everyone has different, you, there's only one person who cares much as much about the business as you, as you said, but everybody else has a different goal. The investors have a different goal, the employees have a different goal, the customers want something different out of you. And so like, as the founder of the company, you just have to be really, really clear with yourself, what you want out of creating the company. That's it. That's like my number one, that's literally what the book is about hangry. So uh, if, you want, if you want to see more on that idea, uh, check
0: MikeEvans.com, just like it sounds. <laughs> Mike, thank you for joining me. I want to do a little follow-up down the road and hear more about how things are going with Fixer. And who knows, for those of you listening, I think it's probably fair to say that we may have a future Startup Hustle TV video about me using Fixer because uh, if that if that goes the way I'm expecting it to, and I and it will with that $40 off, um, I think my life's going to get a lot easier. So I'll catch up with you down the road, Mike. All right. Thanks a lot. It's great talking to you.